This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with a very exciting interview this week, continuing in our business leadership theme. Last week, of course, we featured Shia Rubenstein, who among many other activities, is the co-founder of TribeWorks, a business conference for budding entrepreneurs. And actually at that conference, I had the privilege of meeting Noam Wasserman, this episode's featured guest, and then interviewing him remotely a little bit later on. Just a cute vignette from the interview, which you'll hear a little bit later. At some point, I asked Noam, who lives in Boston, where he was a longtime professor at Harvard Business School, but now commutes cross-country to Los Angeles, where he directs a center for entrepreneurship at the University of Southern California, USC, among many other engagements. I asked him who he would root for in a potential Rams-Patriot Super Bowl, and this was quite the prescient question because I edited this podcast actually during that exact Super Bowl on February 3rd, 2019, and releasing it on the 4th, though the interview itself took place several months ago. So I wish I had put down some money back then when I asked the question. But meanwhile, Noam jokingly responded that he would be comfortable with whatever the outcome because in either case, he would be on the winning side. With that being said, I think the question and his answer is really a wonderful metaphor for Noam's unique contributions in that he functions at an extremely high level on both geographic polls, but also conceptually, both as a seriously committed Jew and contributor to Jewish institutions, as well as an expert in entrepreneurship, startup cultures, and the challenges that founders of startups face along their journeys. And as we'll discover in our conversation, he is especially astute at marrying these two ideals for the benefit of the Jewish community more broadly. Just one other note, A number of people have been asking me lately about the best way to listen to this podcast. And of course, those listening currently may already be on a podcast app. But for those a little bit less familiar, there are many ways to listen. And we are accessible on virtually every podcast platform, whether that is the Apple iTunes podcast app, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, whatever it may be. You can also listen on Facebook as well as stream at our website, www.jewsyoushouldknow.com. That being said, far and away, the most efficient way to listen to the podcast is through a podcast app, which comes natively with every iPhone and is easily downloadable on any Android or any other type of device. By simply subscribing to our podcast feed, you will be notified every time a new episode is released. And again, that is certainly the most expedient way to access the content and to ensure that you know exactly when it's coming out in perpetuity. Of course, while in any podcast app, please feel free to give us a rating and leave a comment so that many more people can continue to discover and enjoy this content. And now for our conversation with entrepreneurship guru, Noam Wasserman. We are here with Noam Wasserman. He is a professor of clinical entrepreneurship 
have to discover what that means at USC, Southern California, also the director of USC's Founders Central Initiative, former professor at Harvard Business School, among uh, many other distinguished titles and facets of his life. How are you, Noam? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. And uh, a real uh, mouthful there in terms of all the different aspects of your professional life. And uh, I'd like to dig into all of them as well as the books that you've written and, and many things of that nature. Um, just tell us first, though, where you're from, what your personal uh, background was. Uh, well, where I'm from, I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, I've been on the East Coast now, though, for far longer than I was in Los Angeles and even just been in Boston alone for more than that. Oh. Um, the, the route was from L.A., graduate high school, go to Israel for a year, then go to Philadelphia for school for five years, go to Silver Spring for five years, and now been in Boston for about two decades. Um, the entering path uh, started life as an engineer and somehow ended up as a business school professor. Oh, my goodness. So L.A. was just uh, was through high school. Did you go to the Eula High School there? Yeah, went to Eula. And then from there, you spent, you said, a year in Israel. And I, I assume that was to do a yeshiva study, a Jewish study program for you? Yeah, uh, back then, we didn't have an elegant term for it like they have today of gap year. We had to end <laughs> a paragraph to describe why we were going there. Um, I went to Yeshivat Shalavim for that year before going to college. College. And then in Philadelphia, I'm, I'm guessing that you went to Penn or to Wharton or? Uh, uh, yeah, so I started out at Penn, Penn Engineering. Um, and then added on also the Wharton one. They had a, a dual degree program between the engineering school and the business school. And so ended up doing that. Uh, to do that, they attacked for an extra year. And so that's how I spent five years in Philadelphia. Got it. And so already at that time, even though you were studying engineering, it seems like you had some sort of penchant for or, you know, at least premonition that you'd be interested in business on some level. Uh, well, yeah, it was more the initial inclination was that I wanted to do something in addition to engineering, that there were ways to go and take things that maybe usually aren't combined, that, that in combination can become a very powerful uh, way to go and do some new things in the world. And so I was looking at possible ways to go and do that with engineering being the given. Uh, the first of the things that I went and dated was a psychology plus computer engineering thing, what eventually would evolve into the equivalent of artificial intelligence, um, and then also went and dated the business and engineering program and uh, just saw that as what could be a pretty magical combination to be able to be either a techie who actually understands business or someone from business who could go and understand the, the technological backbone of the things that were going on. Um, and so that's where I went and ended up uh, choosing that one instead of the AI one. Now today, I think engineering and business is a fairly common fusion. But back then, not that you're that old, but a couple decades ago, I don't know that that was as natural of a, of a fit, right? I, correct me if I'm wrong. I would imagine there was kind of the, the engineers, the tech people and business people, and, and there wasn't as much of a, uh, of a connection between them. Is that accurate or, or was there more going on already then? Yeah. Well, in some ways it's even more dire than what you're saying because it was 30 years ago. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> Um, no, it's definitely a more unique combination. Only back then, even now, it's a bit unique. There's actually very few. There was a program that was relatively a loose program at Penn called Management and Technology for people who wanted to go and combine those. Uh, that was a very unique program back then. And even now, there are very few management and technology types of programs that are out there. 
UC Berkeley has one, and there's a couple of other places, but otherwise, uh, you would have to go and uh, knit together things that aren't going to be at the uh, doing two degrees level. You can go and uh, do business with a minor in computer science or something like that, but to go and have it be at the level of uh, two full degrees they were able to get in that, even now, it's still a rare combination. Interesting. What about those two particular things, you know, ultimately made you settle on, on that combination? Uh, for me, it was the chance. I've always been very keen on how can we find two radically different things that when combined are very, are much more powerful. And uh, to be able to go and think at the big level, strategically, the business side, and then think down in the nitty gritty of implementation on the engineering side, uh, very much appealed to me. To be able to go and span the spectrum of incorporating finance considerations into project planning that we're doing, to be able to go and have the feedback loop on when we go and implement our grand plans, how well do we see that the plans were on target or not? Um, in some ways, it's, it goes and combines what was two uh, very different types of consulting that's out there. You have the front-end management consulting where they go and just provide a report that'll sit on the shelf and where they have to go and rely on clients to implement it, or that you have the system integration firms, the engineering firms that go and take the plans and implement them. But the people who created the plans never have that feedback loop of what were the problems of implementing, and the implementers can grind their teeth and rue the day that they were handed those specs, but they don't go and understand how to go and create the specs to begin with. And so to me, it's being able to go and do that full life cycle of being able to understand the business side, trade it into the tech side, and then be able to do the business side even better the next project that you're doing. Coming out of college, did you feel that this synthesis and this sort of dual skill set was appreciated, it was in demand? Uh, so the, the next step up, I was talking about the management te technology program, the company, the firm that I went to go work for, a pretty entrepreneurial consulting firm, um, the division that I went to was the management and systems technology uh, division within it, like almost the same exact name as my program uh, followed up into what I was doing within the working world. Um, and they were doing exactly what I was just describing, a life cycle approach to doing projects. They recruited very heavily out of that program that I was doing because they wanted people who could go and understand the business and then implement the solution. Um, and so, yeah, no, I carried that up up to the next stage of in the working world, being able to do both of those. I have, I have to follow up because you mentioned that you were in Silver Spring for five years, which is my current place of residence for the last 12 years. Is that where you went to work with this company? And, and was, were they in DC? Like what was the, what brought so you to Silver Spring? Just over DC. We were, we were living in Silver Spring. I was commuting down to Roslyn, which oh, is wow. just the other side into Virginia. Yeah. Um, after three years of having that and my doing that commute was actually a relatively nice commute. You just hop on the metro and you're there for 45 minutes. The firm then moved to Fairfax, Virginia. Okay. Oh, uh, made it into a two hours and 15 minute commute. Um, the, we got a laptop for me, one of the very early laptops. And so I'd be able to a couple of hours worth of work on the metro as I was going and commuting in each direction. Uh, but yeah, no, it was very much in that it, uh, in your neck of the woods that I was doing that work for five years. Were you living in Kem Mill? Exactly. Very nice. So obviously eventually you left there and I know at some point you made your way up to Boston. So was that uh, immediately afterwards and how did that take place? Yeah, well, the uh, thing just to back up to it, 
Yeah. Um, I mentioned as a very entrepreneurial firm, what it was doing was having people on a regular basis go and create new practices within the firm. And that's where I first got a bunch of founding experience. Um, I saw an opportunity. This was the early 90s. Um, a, a brand new technology that came out that I thought had the chance to go and disrupt very big projects that we were doing, five to $10 million projects, be able to do them with groupware, with this new technology for a tenth of that cost. And also that it lent itself much better being able to do the kind of process that I was just describing that I liked to do where you have the business and the technology going back and forth with each other. Within groupware, you could go make a first cut after talking to the initial users, make a first cut at what the system would be, have them take a walk through that, get their feedback on it, go and fix what's wrong, and then extend it to the next level down, then have them do another cut at it. So be able to do an iterative process where you're going back and forth between the business and the technology. What is groupware exactly? So groupware is being able to have multiple people in different locations a lot of times, be able to all be on the same system at the same time, communicating, posting things, being able to collaborate. Um, and so it was like the very early days of being able to do it. And it was a brand new product that I thought had the potential, right? That that's the way that the world is going to be going. Let's go and see if clients would want to pay a lot cheaper of a price for better systems that we can go and develop for them by doing it with Grouper. Um, and so I, I went and started getting projects in that area, ended up founding our groupware practice, then growing it to 19 people over three years, being able to experience a bunch of founding. Um, didn't realize at that time the seeds I was planting for what I was going to eventually go and focus on within my academic life. Um, but I was a solo founder, got into a whole bunch of things around how you go and create a very powerful culture, some of the downsides of creating a powerful culture. Um, how do you go and attract the right people to be doing this type of business? How do you grow how do you go and be able to develop people into becoming the managers who are going to be able to go and run Project View? Um, when you're talking about the, then the move to Boston, um, decided to go back for my MBA. It had been a long time plan to go and uh, be able to go and enhance my education. And also, as a business manager, I saw that I was running into issues on a semi-regular basis, like every couple of months or so. I'd run into a marketing issue, a sales issue. Um, every quarter, we'd have like a very pointed uh, issue within the team, other things like that. And I didn't really feel I was accumulating that much knowledge about how to deal with them when they were just coming up um, in these ad hoc ways. And so decided by going back to school, uh, be able to go and accelerate my development in all of those areas. And so uh, went back for my MBA. We came up to Boston thinking it was just going to be two years for that. And then actually the plan was uh, most likely we'd go back down to Silver Spring, uh, be able to, uh, my wife would go back to um, the position that she had left, I would be going and finding some new work in the entrepreneurial sector or venture capital that was going and uh, starting to get off the ground in DC at that point. Um, but then after going through the MBA program, after working in venture capital also during it and being able to see a much wider set of founding teams, be able to start appreciating how I wasn't unique with the challenges that I was facing as I was going and founding my practice and building it. Um, that's where I started being able to get a broader view of Founding teams, the challenges they face, the early decisions they make that uh, separate success from failure. Um, and that was where I was going to go and have uh, the next stage of going into the entrepreneurial sector with a bit of that knowledge. Along the way, though, I had a couple of people who nudged me in the direction of thinking about a, going into a career in academia, doing a doctoral program, and, and then uh, being able to become the, an academic. Um, this was, I was class of 1999. This is the heights of the gold rush. This was, you know, the, uh, the dot, dot com, com. Right, yeah. Um, it was very much the path less taken that 
uh, no one had gone from at uh, at Harvard. No one had gone from the MBA program into the PhD program in about a decade. Wow. Uh, so it was very much not something that people would go and do much. Um, but as I was going, after having been pushed in the direction of thinking about academia, going and investigating it, I started seeing and also experiencing it a bit. Uh, went in, started doing some research with uh, with my main mentor. Fell in love with the hyper intellectual knowledge that we uh, haven't gotten and gotten yet. How do we go and create that knowledge? How do we go and apply it to the world? Um, and also, as I was thinking back to what I loved to do uh, back when I was working and developing my practice, it was developing my people. It was going and taking a rookie who had just graduated from college, didn't really know how to lead anything or organize anything or do anything in the client management realm, any of the other things that would go into the work that we were doing. And then over a couple of years, how could I go and develop that person to take on more responsibility to be leading projects and things like that? And I realized that my professors had been doing exactly that times 80 students in the classroom. And so between that, the developing people and also the intellectual hunt of creating knowledge on the research side, that's where I decided, let me go. I'll, uh, I had to go and have the difficult conversation with wife about, no, I'm not going and grabbing the gold like all the rest of my classmates as they head out to the uh, Silicon Valley. Um, instead, I'm going to go into the back into the bowels of uh, of the university and uh, go for who knows how many years without getting any kind of a uh, any kind of real salary or anything like that. But um, I had gone and done my due diligence on it and gotten satisfied that uh, this is where the uh, the real passion li- lie and that I wanted to go and do that as the next stage of life. So you you saw quite clearly that you were making a decision, almost a binary choice between a lucrative <laughs> career at a more, I guess, what you considered satisfying or meaningful opportunity to impact generations of students and to seed them with the knowledge that would allow them to be successful. Um, and I guess it sounds like you, you felt those were kind of mutually exclusive. It sounds like you, couldn't, you didn't feel like you could go into a company or found a company and do that sort of influencing from within the entrepreneurial ranks. Well, from the influencing side, that you could do within a company, though at a lower level, maybe a little bit of a deeper, but definitely a a smaller scope in terms of that. Uh, Being able to do the intellectual hunt part of what I was just talking about. That's where creating new knowledge rather than leveraging the existing knowledge, um, especially as I was heading into the doctoral program and I was looking for answers to a bunch of these founding questions that I had. What do we know about the early ways that founders shoot themselves in the foot uh, what do we know about the early decisions that are the make or break ones for the, for the team, for growth, for founders being able to remain CEO of the companies and things like that? I found that academia didn't know anything about it. There was nothing rigorous. There was nothing beyond N of one case studies. Um, and also, there was very much a pattern of they didn't even know what right questions to ask. Um, there was a way in which academics were just assuming that a startup was a smaller version of a large company that a founder CEO was just another type of CEO, um, that you could go and extrapolate from the easier to do research on Fortune 500 or other large companies down to a startup. And for what I had seen and for what I was gathering as I was going and starting to do my research on it, they were making exactly the wrong extrapolations. Not only were they applicable, they actually sometimes were exactly the opposite of where you should come out in terms of how to go and do things successfully as you're creating something from scratch, as opposed to going and uh, continuing with something that one had gone and created. Um, and so because of that, that's where I would be able to go and have that kind of uh, an impact on changing 
our state of knowledge about that changing, how founders go and think through decisions, being able to go and make them much more productive as they're going and getting off the ground. It's interesting because, I mean, even, you know, Fortune 500 companies at some point were founded, right? So I guess there must be in sort of the life cycle of a company, some sort of crossover moment, some sort of threshold where now it is a legacy company. Is, is that, and, and then there's new, a new set of rules would apply to, to their leadership team or to the way that they should approach it? Yeah, no, absolutely. This was actually a revelation that I had when I was coming into HBS on the faculty and seeing all the pieces that the school had gone and put together within the entrepreneur group. And one of the key pieces of it was the entrepreneurial history people. And you can go and see why should a historian be within the entrepreneurship group is because every one of these big companies that we see today had to be founded, had to go and get off the ground at some point. And the history of how those companies were created is entrepreneurial history. Um, And so that's very much a a key part of uh, the landscape. In fact, in my center within Founders, so we're debuting next month, a brand new course that we decided to go and develop on entrepreneurial history, to be able to go and educate this current generation of founders that the entrepreneurial sector that they know so well now wasn't always how it was. Um, Being able to understand how it has changed over time is also critical for arming them to go and change it as they move into the future. Um, And so that's why we're going and invested. I brought on board a very talented historian to go and be able to help us debut the course, um, be able to go and teach it because of exactly what you're saying, that they all started out in that way. Um, There definitely are ways in which that is a make or break transition from going from the organic early days, the founder-led, the emphasis on the technology and the science that's going to go and develop a product. That's a very different stage compared to when the product is developed, you have to go now the company, you have to go beyond just a project team to go and flesh out all the different functions. That is one of the most critical stages that if a company can get through that, then it can become something big and powerful. But most of them falter at that point because it's a very different set of skills, very different set of people, um, the very different sets of issues to go and scale up, to be able to go and formalize compared to the early days when you're going and getting it off the ground. And that's one of the most critical transitions that was the first thing that I was actually studying, that founder-CEO succession. When you go and have the founder hand the reins to the next CEO, um, that person usually looks very different from the founder. The company is at a very different stage. If this is done successfully, the company will look very different um, compared to those early founding days. But there's all sorts of ways in which the typical transition is done badly. Um, and how can we go and educate everyone involved from both sides of the table? The founder who's doing it, the board who is going and oftentimes is the one who pushes in that direction. The successor who's coming in on the heels of the founder and has to understand what are the seeds that were planted that he should be growing, but also what are going to be sources of potential resistance? What are the ways to use the founder and the magic that the founder brings in a very targeted way now, rather than having uh, that founder be running this show? If you lose that person, you lose a whole bunch of critical things. How do you go and refocus that person on the critical uh, parts that only they can go and do so well. Um, and so all of those are a bunch of things that go into scaling the company and getting it to, to the large and successful things that we see today. So when you were at Harvard, you went get straight into their PhD program. Did they have a PhD in, what was it, in management, in business administration? What was the degree? Uh, so that was actually something that we struggled with at first because the prototypical programs there, um, there's one in... Uh, economics, like the financial side of, of businesses. There's one in organizational behavior, the people and the other organizational ones. From everything that I had seen myself 
in the first hand when I was founding and then anything that I'd seen after it, you needed to have all those pieces come together to be able to go and do entrepreneurship research, research well. If you just understand the organization, but not the incentives of the people, the fundraising they're doing and the investor side of it, then you're missing a key piece of it. If you're only looking at the economics part, you're missing all the people side and the team. Um, and so we ended up crafting was a PhD program that was a mix of the two. Um, did the full year of microeconomics and plus the econometric side of the economics program, but then also did the sociology and psychology from the, uh, the organizational behavior program. And those are the three key disciplines that I have to go and draw on. It's about everything that I do when it comes to doing research on startups and founders uh, because of the missing pieces you're going to be grappling with if you are blind to those other pieces of the puzzle. So you basically created your own PhD. Uh, well, we took one of the programs and um, used that as the basis for it and then had ways that the other pieces could go and take care of requirements within it. Uh, so for instance, the, um, the, the one that was the best one to go and do was the foundational organizational behavior program. But instead of its usual quantitative methods courses, uh, we took the, the econometrics courses from the uh, doctoral part in economics and got them to count for that. Um, the microeconomics courses I had to do gratis. Uh, I didn't get any credit in the sociology or psychology realms for doing those, but um, doing the year of that and being to go and have that complement the other pieces of it, that's where we went and created a hybrid program to be able to go and uh, to tackle all of those bases and all the disciplines. Who were your mentors at that time? Were there, were there kind of any luminaries in this field yet, or was this really a completely, you know, completely uh, fresh terrain? Uh, relatively speaking, it was fresh, but there's definitely a bunch of giants on whose shoulders I was able to go and stand on and be able to see a lot further than I could have otherwise. Uh, my main mentor and that the person who had been the one who had given the biggest nudge for me to think about academia um, was my leadership professor, a guy named Nathan Noria. Um, he is actually now the dean of Harvard School. Um, wow. So he's a very a leading a leadership researcher and uh, been a critical mentor for me over the last 20 years. Um, and so he was definitely a key piece of it. And the other people who pushed me in that direction uh, was a guy named Paul Gompers, who's actually an Orthodox Jew who does research on venture capital, uh, one of the leading VC researchers in the world. Um, the two of them were two of the four uh, members of my dissertation committee. Um, and then two of the other ones, one was a sociologist, and then the um, other one was another economist. So essentially I had two organizational behavior people, two economists who were on my doctoral uh, PhD committee. Um, being able to knit together all of it. Um, none of them had done anything that was squarely in where I was, uh, what I was trying to go and do, but each of them brought uh, brand new pieces to it. Um, they each were able to push back in different ways on it and be able to go and help me be able to see pieces that I have to go and work a little bit more on, be able to lock down more, be able to uh, um, go and think about a new method that I hadn't learned that maybe I should get under my belt because it could go and also add some insights to it. And so that's how we went and de dealt with being able to build a committee that collectively could be very productive, but there was no single person that was squarely in their place. So now you, you, continued on, you continued on from there to teach at Harvard itself. You kind of stayed within the walls of that institution. Uh, um, yeah, no, actually, yeah, I had gone, was looking at uh, other options, things like that, but um, it was definitely for being able to start off the career, being able to go and continue building the foundation for it. It was the uh, the best one to go with. We also were starting to get a little bit rooted in Boston. And so that's where some of the principal considerations start coming in. Um, found it a delightful town to be able to go and raise the family and be able to have schools that were in sync with what we wanted for our kids. And, um, and so 
uh, that one, those are all the things that came together in terms of the staying in Boston. So what was your early experiences as a teacher? I believe that at some point you actually were awarded a, uh, a citation for most popular teacher or something along those lines. Um, so, so you must have been doing something right over there. Were you teaching mostly undergrads? And what were some of the things that you enjoyed about teaching, learned about teaching? How did you evolve as a professor at, as you were at Harvard? Uh, so one of the issues that, about teaching at Harvard Business School is I can't do undergrads. Um, there's only grad students there. It's only the, the core MBA program and then doctoral students that are there. Um, what you typically do when you join as a brand new doctoral graduate um, is that you go and teach in the first year curriculum where they have required courses. Each department has its own course that it teaches within the first year. Um, and so I was teaching the entrepreneurial management course that was uh, the last of the courses within the first year. Um, that's where you have a bit of a teaching group. You're able to go and learn from other people, be able to be mentored when it's your early days and things like that. Um, but the critical thing was more being in the classroom and actually going and doing. Um, I remember the, the first 20 minutes of my first day of teaching um, was possibly the most influential 20 minutes that I've ever had in the classroom um, in the sense that I never picked up a piece of chalk until it was me in front of um, 80 students for that first course, uh, for that first day that I was teaching within the entrepreneurial manager course. Um, there were two impressions that I got during that first 20 minutes. Um, the first one of them was very mundane, but in some ways fundamental about how much of a rookie I was, is that these chalkboards are a lot smaller than I ever expected. <laughs> I'm writing on it, I'm trying to make it you know, big enough that everyone can go and see what I'm writing as I'm capturing the discussion and facilitating it, and just ran out of room, and I realized, wait, I have to go allocate my space and plan around it a lot better. It's a good metaphor, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other one was a bit more fundamental about the art versus the science of teaching. Um, and that was, I had gone in, I had thought through all the key things we wanted to cover during that initial discussion. These are all the things that we should be able to go and get up there on the board. And no matter what, I was going to make sure all of those got out there. And so when the students were going, bringing some up like them, but I'd get them up there on the board. But the ones that weren't coming up, I was going and making sure they were going to get up there on the board with leading questions and other things like that. And as I was finishing that process, I was like, this is far tougher than it should be. This is my driving it instead of my bringing out the thought process from the students. There's got to be a different way to go and do this. And that's where I started realizing the ways in which we have to go. And this is where it's a challenge. How do we drive at knowledge that the students are going to gain, but still allow the exploration, still allow them to be the ones we're going with our guidance and getting them to that point. And so what I realized from that, one of the key things that I go now, one of my passions and one of the key hats that I've worn for the last decade is teaching the teachers, teaching professors how to go and teach. And one of the critical things is you have to understand what are the maybe two or three most critical things that have to get out during this current discussion in order to have the learning and the pattern emerge, but that otherwise that you are fine with whatever other things come up as long as they're within the constraints of what you are going and discuss right now let the students go grapple with these issues make sure you're driving them towards the two or three key things that they're going to be able to go and uh, be able to learn from it but otherwise you have to allow for that and the term that we use for it is that it's a pasture what is a pasture a pasture is a meadow that hopefully has a whole bunch of very uh, very enriching things for people to go and eat but it has a fence around it it has a way in which you have to go and have a scope you have to be clear 
clear in your mind about what is the scope of this current discussion so that we can go and get to the learning that's going to be happening here? What is the key takeaway that the students are going to be able to have from this discussion? But go and allow them to go and be able to graze and be able to go and explore in the ways that are going to be productive for their picking up the patterns and being able to learn how to go and encounter brand new problems beyond anything we can teach them about and still have the ability to go and bring structure to it and bring able to uh, bring that pattern to it. And so all those things are the things that I had that realization from the first 20 minutes of my going and teaching. Well, um, what, were your, what were your impressions of the students there at Harvard? Um, were you impressed by their, you know, their intellectual level and their, their ambition? And, and were there any who emerged from, from these courses and from these programs to really accomplish notable achievements? Uh, no, I, I was very impressed with them uh, for better or for worse, having been uh, an MBA student there, I kind of knew what I was getting into in right. the classroom in terms of where the students would be coming from, um, all the other things that go into it. One of the delightful things, going back to my passion for developing people, is going and interacting with them one-on-one, being able to have the office hours and the discussions with them, helping them grapple with the dilemmas that they are going and facing. Um, and so, no, the, the student experience was terrific. Um, it's not anything, though, that I've found since then um, uh, that's specific to Harvard. Uh, I've had that at every single one of the universities that I've been at. I, I've been a visiting professor at three other universities. I have been you know, full-time now for, uh, for three years at USC, et cetera. I, uh, I found all sorts of ways in which the, that's more of a universalism in terms of the, the delightfulness of the students. Um, I've taught not just in business schools, but engineering schools, found the same thing there. Uh, it's all the same ways where people are grappling with the human issues where they're going and having to, we're having to figure out where they are at and now get them to the next level and how do we go as educators and do that. That's the universal challenge of education to go and do it. It's not anything specific to uh, anything that's on the Harvard campus. So we'll, we'll try not to uh, disabuse the Harvard students of their sense of exceptionalism. <laughs> we'll let them uh, continue to think that they're different, they're special. Um, uh, it's actually one of the things I remember being warned of as a student and then warning the students also over there not to go at that in some ways when you're coming out of the MBA program there you're starting with a bit of a uh, a strike against you with regards to almost everyone that you go and deal with because everyone has this perception of arrogance coming out of there and I tell my students you have to go and undo that long uh, ingrained perception that you're arrogant you have to go in the opposite direction humility is what you have to go and bring to every interaction with those people uh, so that you can go and change so that you can go and uh, be able to have them appreciate you for not being the stereotype that people uh, sometimes mistakenly, sometimes accurately uh, <laughs> carry that. So uh, to me, it's the onus is on all of the graduates to go and change uh, the impression that is out there in the world. And that starts with changing it in their mind and not going and thinking that we are here at this hallowed campus and therefore we are great. Uh, if anything, you have to go in the opposite direction to go and uh, work against that stereotype. It's interesting because I, I often find that when meeting people who went to Harvard in all different disciplines, you say, you know, where did you go to school? They say, I went to school in Boston. <laughs> if they went to, you know, BU or Northeastern, they'll say that. But if they went to Harvard, they say, I went to school in Boston. <laughs> Maybe that's part of the, well, the downplay. The smart ones who have tuned into how it can become a problem rather than a something to brag about. There you go. So you were really only teaching graduate students. Did you at any time wish you could be teaching even younger students and kind of more foundationally 
um, you know, crafting their identity and so forth. Because especially with an MBA, those are often people who have been in the working world for a number of years, maybe a little bit more established. Um, I'm sure have room to grow, obviously, but with with undergrads, you you know, would really have that formative uh, sort of process. Was that something that you ever wanted to do? Uh, yeah, no, I actually got a chance to go and explore that realm a little bit, but not within HBS. Um, there's a professor who used to teach a bit of my material at MIT engineering undergrad. Um, and so he would have me come over and do a day with these students when we were going to, he'd, he'd long had a Wasserman day on his syllabus. And one year he just decided, let's see if Wasserman wants to come in and do Wasserman day. Um, and so I went over and uh, did that for a little bit. And that's where I started to go and uh, see a bunch of the, the gem that teaching undergrad could be. Um, the, the ways in which the uh, shaping them during those earlier days, as you're referring to, where um, it's a more foundational way in which you're going and um, having them learn how to go and be better in teams, having them tune into and gain self-awareness. Um, that, that's even more important during those earlier formative times during their college career. And so I got to experience that a little bit. Um, then during the last couple of years at HBS, they also started a program for undergrads from the from Harvard Yard, where they'd be bringing them over to go and learn some business things. And so I was able to get involved in that program and be able to also and um, encounter them. And so, no, that, that was very much something that I loved doing. Uh, but also, even going down to a deeper, uh, you know, an earlier stage of life, a more foundational one. Um, within Boston here, and I don't know how much you want to get into this, but um, I was the founding chairman of a brand new high school here. Um, that's where we, uh, one of my passion going and doing that was to go and start having even in ninth grade be able to go and influence the students. Um, one of the core pieces of that high school is that there is a four-year track, like every year of high school, the students are doing a course in seeing that is a mix of entrepreneurship and computer science. Wow. They're learning how to do programming, they're learning how to go and think through um, user requirements, they're learning how to go and bring that together with understanding what the market and what customers need and things like that. Um, and so being able to go and even in the uh, high school years of people, be able to go and arm them for thinking in a different way about all of these different pieces together and then be able to do it at the undergrad level, which actually when, my, when I was going to USC, the fact that their undergrad is a core piece of um, the, the curriculum there. It's uh, much bigger than the grad programs. It is the, um, in some ways, a flagship part of the education there. That was also a big attraction to be able to go and um, be able to have the, leave a mark on the undergrads that were there. So as you mentioned now, you referenced you, you uh, kind of a homecoming of sorts, went back out west to USC, became a, uh, became a Trojan, um, hopefully having more success than, than this year's football team. Um, I think just got drubbed by UCLA. Um, so what, what brought you back out west? You know, most people, I would say, don't leave Harvard. Again, going back to that sense of, uh, of exceptionalism, you know, it's not a place that you t tend to leave. So why did you leave there? Um, and it sounds like in addition that your family remained in Boston. Um, and, and so you're a, uh, a commuter now heading, heading West. I don't know how frequently, um, what, what about that compelled you to, uh, to, to go across the country? Yeah, no, it's a great question, especially because whenever I go into any new place, whenever I take on a new position, I do it with the mindset of this is going to be for life. And Harvard definitely goes and, and uh, reinforces that, that there's no other place <laughs> in the world that, you know, uh, anywhere else is, would be a major letdown and things like that. 
Um, the first, my breaking in terms of my mindset, in terms of that, um, was when uh, I, there was a brand new school, very exciting um, new effort that was starting up in the New York area um, that reached out to me. The core of it was to go and be a mix, both engineering and entrepreneurial side of business, um, be able to go and uh, they reached out to me, how can you go and help us architect creating this? Um, and to be able to go and maybe have a hand in that, I found is a very exciting prospect. And that was the first thing. I didn't end up going and doing that, but it was a critical step for me to go and start grappling with, hey, maybe there are higher impact ways in which I can go and, um, and change the world than just staying here um, on campus in Boston and things like that. And after that, I was open to when people, I was getting inquiries from people about um, uh, possible places. Like a, in general, I'd go have a chat with them and it wouldn't make sense to do it. But once in a while, there were exciting ones that came up and I was much more open to it uh, having had the ice broken by that other inquiry. Um, USC reached out to me and essentially asked, what do you love to do? And I gave them a list of four things and they designed those four into the job. Um, and so between that, um, all of those four were ways in which I wanted to go and impact the world and all the different dimensions that were passions of mine. And between that and being able to get back home, being able to go and um, for the first time in 30 years, be able to uh, go to the synagogue with my father in the mornings, be able to go and have dinner with my parents when I'm in LA. Uh, that's something I missed only once I was going and doing it. That's when I really understood what I had missed for 30 years. Um, but to be able to go and have that dual thing of being able to go craft the job I really want to go and have and be able to go and um, have the parents be a local for some percentage of the year. That's, uh, that was a lot of the alert for me. So what is clinical entrepreneurship and what is a founder's central initiative? Is it a kind of, is it a, an incubator of sorts? Like what, what exactly is happening now at USC? Okay. So the, that was one of the hats that I had discussed with them. Uh, essentially for 15 years, I'd been a lone researcher and a lone educator going and taking these things that I'd been doing on the early decisions founders make that get them in trouble. And what I wanted to do was go and bring a lot more people, a lot more resources to it, be able to go and build a center um, around the work that I had been doing all on my own. Um, and so to be able to go and do that, uh, USC um, agreed to go and seed funded initially for a couple of years, essentially give me um, some time and some funding to go and figure out what should that be? What would it look like? Um, and all the different dimensions that I wanted to go um, and add people and add activities. And then how am I going to go and have it be funded? How am I going to go and raise money around it? Um, and so that was the uh, Founder Central was one of the big allures of being able to come on board there. Um, as I was thinking through it, I went and took my initial ideas about how I want to go and have a full uh, entrepreneurial curriculum for the students. Um, within that, I don't know how much of the details you want to get into on the, the specific thing, but I see entrepreneurial um, the education as being a three-legged stool with a bunch of context around it. And the three legs on the stool are product, people, and financing. And within USC, they were great at products. They had been a long-time pioneer in that. Um, they didn't have anything people, and they didn't have much on the financing. And so within Founders Central, I would go and add the people part that was the deep uh, element that I had been doing for uh, for the 15 years and then be able to and also finance that I touched on a bit but be able to go and bring in people who can go and help me on the finance side and then the contextual side one of them is something I was already uh, referring to the entrepreneurial history piece being able to understand how things have changed until now and how we can shape them into the future um, brought on board first as a visitor 
um, a historian that I had worked with beforehand, taught together with that HBS for a couple of years, brought him on board to be able to go and help me craft that course. And then this past summer, hiring a full-time historian to come on board to be able to go and help us debut it. Um, also be able to take on a couple of sections of my course, but that's how we got the entrepreneurial history side. You're also working, one of the wings of Founder Central is entrepreneurial ethics, be able to go and understand all of the critical decisions that founders face uh, daily, hourly, that have ethical uh, components to them that they're usually not prepared to think about in, in the fray. Like a, when you're going and making those decisions, it's too late. You have to go and have a way that's honed to you about what your values are, what are the trade-offs you're not willing to make, um, and other things like that, and be able to have them grapple with it ahead of time. What, what, um, are, some of those, and, what are some of those major dilemmas? Um, so very early on, you don't have a product. You're going and pitching vaporware. Is there any ethical problem with your going and doing that? Uh, you're, you're pitching the potential as if it is already reality. Being able to go and grab it, you're doing that to almost everyone, including yourself. You're telling yourself that this is going to be the reality and being able to uh, go and really grapple with what the state is. But when you're going and pitching your spouse on you're going and doing this as a founder, are you painting for them the true picture of the ups and the downs? Or are you only painting the rosy scenario? When I conquer the world, when the money comes in, when the customers are there, that's where you have to go and grapple with being able to go and lay it on the line about giving a full picture rather than the one that is going to get you the support, go and start, but is going to come crashing down as soon as you hit a bump in the road and the person from whom you need the support is going to be telling, saying, I told you so, or you know, some other problem. Are you going to go and sell or are you going to go and bring someone in as a partner to go and help you do that? That partner of life is going to be a critical part of that support. But then every employee you bring on board, whenever you're pitching investors, all of these things are, are you going to go and bring a bunch of that potential without crossing the line into misstating that the vaporware is actual product and uh, the other pieces of it? That's just one of the examples around it, but that's uh, one of the preponderant ones that we have to go and think through ahead of time with all those. Um, and so anyways, a bunch of those things that I wanted to go and build within Founder Central. Um, and as I'm going and talking to potential funders, to alumni who might want to give back to the school, um, to a foundation um, that was very interested in uh, a higher ed and being able to go and uh, being able to help fund these things. Um, that's where I was able to go and see a bunch of the excitement around the impact we we're going to be able to have in all of these directions. Um, we came up with a five-year plan uh, for a center that would be about $10 million worth of what we'd have to go and raise. Um, and within a year, we raised $8 million of it. Venture capitalists, where did you raise the... Now, it was from the individual donors, so the alumni and the other people who very much believed in it, and then also the foundation. Um, uh, one of the donors, the first one, works with a foundation that coalesces a bunch of the individual donors' efforts. They know that they can do a lot more if they can coalesce their interests and do it together. Um, and so between working with all of them, that's how we were able to go and get in. We were able to take that five-year plan, make it much more into a two-year plan. We could bring people on a lot sooner. We could go and uh, create a lot more of the activities, be able to debut the course uh, a lot sooner, the, the, the history one to complement the, the flagship Founders Dilemmas course. Um, and so those are all the things that go into being able to go and build Founders Central. How often do you go out west and, and are you, because you're still living in Boston, correct? Yeah, so yeah, no, we're, uh, the rest of the family is very still rooted in Boston. <laughs> um, what uh, I do is I consolidate all of my teaching into a single semester, into the spring semester, which runs from January to April. Um, during that, in fact, this morning, I was just going and making uh, the airplane tickets for the first half of the semester. Um, what I do is I, um, the typical routine 
for me is I go and teach on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, and so on Monday, I will go, I'll grab the early afternoon services um, here to be able to go and do the 115 minion. Uh, I will go and run to the airport. I will go and hop on the flight to LA. Um, I will land around nine or so, um, hopefully before then to be able to go and um, catch the evening services in LA. Um, I go and teach Tuesday, Thursday. I usually have things that I have to go and do on Wednesday. Um, and then I take the red eye back on a Thursday night and get home in time on Friday morning to be able to go and catch the services here in Boston. Uh, so, uh, another famous Bostonian, Rabbi Soloveitchik, way back in the day, commuting to uh, New York for his teaching, I think on maybe on Tuesdays and Thursdays as well. Um, yeah, no, there's great precedent within the Boston community to be able to go and uh, do the same kind of routine. The real question is, if you become a, if there's a, a Rams Patriots Super Bowl, who would you be rooting for? It's the. Uh, <laughs> well, we actually had we had Celtics Lakers uh, a few years ago. We just had Red Sox Dodgers in the World Series. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's <laughs> so right. To so me, gotta, all of those situations, I'll lose. Talk about uh, ethical. Can, talk about ethical dilemmas. You know. <laughs> <laughs> there's no dilemma for me. I'm happy no matter what happens, and so I can be the one person in the universe who can sit back and actually enjoy the game. There you go. I'm curious just how your and you referenced extensively your Jewish commitments. How has all of that played into everything that you've done um, in all these different roles? Certainly, I mean, I think an obvious you know, meaning point could be in these ethical dilemmas courses. But just in general, how have you been received as a committed Jew in, these, in this area? And how do you perceive yourself and your own sense of responsibility as a, an observant Jew to the broader, um, to the broader entrepreneurial community? Uh, well, it definitely goes and shapes a lot of the ways in which I look at issues, the ways in which I, uh, the, that's just from the, the content of what I go and study. It's definitely shaped by it. Like we can talk about one example about how a Talmudic principle went and uh, shaped yeah, a bit of my looking at entrepreneurial failure. Um, but from my own perspective as like looking at my career, even before academia, um, I definitely was very clear about these are the things that I am not willing to go and violate, uh, not willing to, the, these are the red lines for me. Um, so for instance, when I was coming out of college, I was doing recruiting, um, the most hallowed firm that you can go and work for um, out of undergrad, especially out of business schools, um, is the McKinsey Consulting McKinsey, Firm. sure, yeah. And so I, I was going uh, like with my full head of steam coming out of this program, you know, hey, I assume that they would be very interested in the mix of the technology and the business, that they'll be very powerful for them. Um, but I walked into my McKinsey interview and he noticed that I had a wedding ring on and he noticed that I had my yarmulke on. Uh -oh. And we ended up going and talking a drip about that. And I ended up telling him that, yes, I actually at graduation will have a three month old. Um, I am not willing to go and travel much. I am going to have a, for 25 hours of every week that you cannot go and reach me. Um, during the fall and the spring, I'm also going to have a, uh, sometimes three-day chunks of time that you're not going to be able to go and reach me because of the Jewish holidays. And mid-interview, essentially, we, he essentially said that consulting's not for you. Uh, this is not something that you should go and do, given the, the, those constraints that you're putting on it. Um, and so my McKinsey interview didn't even go full-time. I didn't get that full half hour because, essentially, I wanted to be like a truth in advertising. I want to be very clear with him what he was signing up for. I, very much believe that if we are going, this goes back to some of the ethical things around founders selling uh, paperware. I think that truth in advertising from the beginning with a potential employer is critical. 
Not that you go and hide certain things, you get the job offer, and then you tell them that you're not going to be able to tackle me for uh, every Saturday. You're not going to be able to go and rely on me for being able to go to four corners of the earth where uh, sometimes I can't get food, and sometimes there's, uh, there aren't uh, nine other Jews that I can go and be together in a synagogue with, etc. cetera. Um, I think it's critical to really lay it on the line from the beginning. And so being able to tell the truth and be represent yourself um, at the beginning. And so that's career-wise what I've always gone and done within the constraints of also making sure that I'm going to be able to uh, do all of those things. When I was um, in the initial firm that I was at, the, the entrepreneurial firm that I ended up founding the practice in, initially um, I had to travel for about two weeks out of that first year because they'd understood that this is something that I want to go and minimize and things like that. Even then, the client that I had, for those two weeks, we would just go and fly out for the, for the middle days of the week. I had to go as Oklahoma City. There was not a <laughs> of kosher stuff in Oklahoma City. Um, I had to go and bring a box food that I could go and be uh, having as the food that I was going to be doing there. I would have to go and essentially make sure that I had everything that I needed. I was minimizing how much I would have to go and rely on it. But uh, since then, I've had to go sometimes for part, I would have to go and teach at our center in China. Uh, like a, I, my conditions around that were I'm not leaving until Saturday night and I have to be back before the next Friday. Um, uh, all sorts of other ways I have to go and you know, make sure that the things I'm agreeing to are going to fit within those constraints. Um, and so that's all definitely guided. And sometimes it means maybe I haven't been able to go and you know, grab some of the great options that are out there, be able to work for McKinsey and things like that. But in the end, it's always turned into, and this goes back to a bit of that phrase I was referring to about the Gamzulatoba side of life. It was all for the better that I didn't go and get seduced by Kinsey Mystique, um, that I went and found a firm where I could do something very entrepreneurial. I wouldn't have ever gotten the same kind of founding experiences to go and create a practice and run it. All sorts of ways in which I uh, turned out for better um, to, that I went and I had that option foreclosed for me. Um, and that's been at almost every stage of the, the career shifts and changes and things like that. I can point to all sorts of Gamzlatova, that's for the best, um, that I was able to go and be able to find a better route than the one that I thought was the right one, um, but where the big hand from above was pointing me in a different direction than maybe I had expected. You mentioned the Talmudic lesson. Was that, is that the one, Gamzlatova? Yeah, that's definitely one. That's the most central one to me. Um, we hear all sorts of things about how failure is a critical thing that you have to go and grapple with as a founder. Um, there's all sorts of ways in which that's become a bit of the mystique, but how do you actually make that happen? And how do you go and um, pick yourself up off the pavement when you're, uh, when the, when the challenges of life uh, throw you down to it? Um, and to me, the, an entrepreneurial mindset around Gamzlatova is one that I, the last day of class every semester is the Gamzlatova day is where I'm going and talking to the students about how you can go and learn a bunch of the actionable things to go and harness the setbacks in life go and rethink your path to go and understand a little more deeply about yourself, be able to go and gain additional energy to go and have maybe, if you will, a chip off your, on your shoulder to go and uh, chip on your shoulder to go and, you know, put even more emphasis into what you are going and doing. Um, uh, there was a classic line from a student of mine a few years ago that I just, it, it had lots of deep meat to me and I went to put it over my office and I've seen since then, like when I give talks, uh, a lot of the times, the ones that they are going and tweeting out, like the pictures that they have of me talking in front of the slide, happens to do with this. Um, that student's line was, it's really easy to get stuck in a rut, especially if you're good at what you do. Interesting. And there's all sorts of ways where, to me, 
we go, we head into autopilot, we go and continue on a road that we've gone and inertia is keeping us going down that road. And when we go and have a setback, when we go and have some shock from the outside, we have to go and take that as the blessing that it is to go and see, am I in a rut? And if so, how should I get out of it and find a different path that I should be going down? How could I go tune back into the things that I love to do, impact I want to have on the world, and maybe is the equivalent of I'm driving to work, I hit a detour sign, and I'm in a rush, and I'm you know very upset that I'm going to make it in time, actually find a better way to work. If not for that detour sign, I would not have gone and found the better path. And in life, the same kind of thing around how to go and see the setbacks as the blessing that they often are, and then if we can go and use them to be able to go gain knowledge, gain a way that we can go and bring more energy to what we are going and doing, then that's how we've turned to Gamzla Toba. This is also going to be for the best into the mandate, mandate to make it for the best. In starting to wrap up, I want to ask you about segueing into hearing about your books. Uh, you've written a book, I believe, Life is a Startup. And I want to do that by, by asking you, you've referenced several times that there are key mistakes that many and perhaps most founders of companies make when they're trying to transition from maybe that organic early period to a more mature phase in their development. What are some of those critical mistakes to avoid? And are, and are those the, the principal uh, themes that you've written about in your books or have the books been about other topics within the, the general startup landscape? Uh, well, the books is two books. Uh, okay. It's not good. Um, it is essentially the first one of them is dealing with the issues you were just grappling with. Um, it was essentially to take the first decade of my research on the early decisions founders make that get them in trouble. Um, it was published back in 2012, but it was going and taking all the things I'd been doing from 2000 through 2009. The first 10,000 founders worth of data that I had collected, uh, the case studies that I had written during the first decade of it, the frameworks I had developed within my course and honed with the students before then going and translating to the book. Um, essentially, that book came out of my frustration at only being able to go and impact 200 future founders in the classroom every year. And how can I go and bring a whole bunch of the lessons and the key knowledge to the wider population of founders? Um, and so that was the book that went and captured a lot of those missteps, a lot of the early decisions founders make unthinkingly. And they, when they think about it, I think it's going to heighten their potential. It's going to be something that's going to be a good thing for them to go and do, not realizing that this is one of the things that the research shows is a dangerous decision to go and make. What are some so, of the, the top uh, mistakes? Uh, well, the, a lot of the critical ones, this is all focused on the full side, who you involve and how you involve them. Um, it's to go and, first of all, follow your gut. Uh, this is where I go and tap my favorite saying from Steve Jobs, um, follow your heart, but check it with your head. And a lot of times we have the celebration of the instinctive entrepreneur, the gut level decisions. Those can be magic when you're doing lots of other things like product decisions and other things like that. But when it comes to people decisions you're making, following your heart and your gut is dangerous. That's what the research shows. Interesting. It heightens the risk rather than heightens the potential. Why? And the most common of those decisions that we make when we're going and following it, we're in the rosy days, the early days where we're only thinking about the upside and we're not thinking about the, the, the pitfalls on the road. We are also, when we're following our gut, we're succumbing to the natural human equation to avoid difficult conversation. Founders do that at their peril. You go and punt on the discussion about, um, and let me go and capture it a little bit in terms of some of the structure around it. 
um, the most critically founding team decisions that my, that my research has highlighted, you have to think much more deeply about, I call the three R's. The three R's are the relationships you're tapping, the roles and decision-making, and the rewards. Dominant financial re the, the Equity, rewards. Yeah. Exactly, and so the, re the relationship, when you're going and following your gut, the data is that the most preponderant place that founders find their co-founders is among their friends and family. Right, makes sense. The most dangerous, the most unstable of the founding teams are your friends and family. And so it's just an indicator, a bit of one microcosm of when you're following the gut, that's where you're going and making some of the risk decisions that you're going to be making. The same kind of thing when it comes to the roles and decision making. Um, the most common model that people adopt within founding teams is what I call the Neverland model. Uh, from Peter Pan, like all the peers that were there, there was no adult supervision, there was no the hierarchy, anything like that, within founding teams. We'll take pride in the fact that we make decisions by consensus. One founder, one vote. Uh, we're effectively, if not officially, co-CEOs. We're all in this together. And when you go in, architect things like that, especially as growth is happening, as you're going and uh, adding people and you're still maintaining Neverland, that is a recipe for gridlock. It is a recipe for, for tension. It is a recipe for all sorts of problems within the founding team. And so that most common of the roles and decision-making approaches that uh, people take to that is also the most ill-fated. Um, it's also the most common when you're talking about the role side of roles and decision-making, that the idea person becomes the CEO. Unfortunately, once you go and you become CEO, there's lots of ways in which you fall in love with the, that title. There's lots of ways in which inertia sets in about uh, wanting to remain CEO. But the skills that made you the great idea person are not the same ones that are gonna make you the best leader for the venture as it's going and growing and adding people and functions and other things like that. And yet, it becomes a very uh, tension-filled issue to go and have that person give up the CEO title um, and all the other things that go into it. And so that's where you got, again, that preponderant element of what feels right at that point is actually the thing that's gonna get you in trouble and is gonna go and create uh, problems for within the team and for the venture overall. When it comes to rewards, also the same kind of thing. The most common way that founders go and split the rewards, and particularly equity that you were talking about, is the one end rule. We, we don't know how we should go and split this. Let's just go and punt on that discussion by doing it equally. And being able to go the one over N, when it's two founders, it's one over two that we're each getting, half of it. One over a third, a third, a third, if it's three of us. They also are going, and in that rosy early day, they're going and setting it in stone. This is what the equity split is going to be from now until the life of the venture that we each have a third of it if we're three founders and things like that. That's where they're not willing to go and have, one of the things that underlies it is not willing to go and have that difficult conversation about what if one of us is going to drop out of the venture? What if one of us is not able to go and scale with it? Um, what if, I have my doubts that you first time founder has never been in the darkest day of the venture where everything is falling in on you that you're going to be able to persist through it. They're not going to be willing to go and do that for their friend and family to go and have uh, that kind of a discussion of essentially saying, I don't have that much confidence in your ability to be a long-term player within this venture. So they go, they split it equally, they split it statically. And then that is actually the most ill-fated of the ways to go and do it. Uh, in my research, I call it the, the quick handshake, the way in which you're going rushing through it and just going and uh, punting on that discussion, shaking hands over the one over N split. And that those teams are the ones that are the least stable, are the ones who have the least, uh, the least success at going and raising financing when they go and have an outsider start scrutinizing the decisions they made and they start seeing this red flag around how it went and split the equity. 
um, that there's actually a dropout founder that they're seeing who disappeared with half of the equity. There's all sorts of ways in which that's a big red flag about a team that can't go and deal with difficult issues themselves internally. How well are they going to be able to go and deal with it when they negotiate with customers, when they negotiate with investors and things like that? Now, you must have a field day when you're, when you're analyzing, you know, companies in the news like Facebook or Uber and kind of seeing their development and, and you know, where they're doing well, but also where they've, you know, perhaps uh, gone astray. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's very preponderant patterns. And the ones you were just picking out are the ones who were the outliers, the ones who were able to actually beat odds when the odds were against them to be able to go and make it. Even then, they have all sorts of challenges that they were only lucky to go and get through. So this thing that we were just talking about, for instance, Facebook, yeah. the thing that became, made them very prominent in movie theaters, social network, the movie, the Oscar movie, that wouldn't exist if not for the fact that Mark Zuckerberg went and split the equity badly. Right. Because he went and split 70-30 with Eduardo and then regretted it, wanted to grab it back, but he had a static split that he went and created, that very common way that people split, that he got into legal trouble by going and trying to grab back that equity. It was the bad equity split that he was able to be lucky enough to go and survive, and usually ventures aren't able to go and do it, but he made the same bad founding mistake around equity and rewards that, uh, that lots of founders go and make and just happened to be the one who was able to survive it. How is life a startup and uh, what's that book about, that second book you wrote? So that was the next one that was really also about a decade in the making. Um, the seed for that was planted back in 2010. Um, this is where uh, the classic uh, line from Ethics of the Fathers from Pirkei Avos about um, that I learned a lot from my teachers, more from my peers, but the most from my students. This is a classic example of that. Um, the, while I was teaching my Fasalamas course, the second year of it, uh, but I had been laser focused on founders, as we were just talking about, for a decade. Um, I had a student come by to chat with me. Also, we talked about how I love having the student interactions. Like, uh, it was going to be another one of those delightful office hours things. But I have to be having a lot more import than that. Um, the student sat down across from me, looked me in the eye and said, Noam, I'm never going to be a founder, but your course has already, ch has already changed my marriage. To me, that was, I had trouble grappling with that. Like, uh, that was not at all what I was trying to do in the classroom. <laughs> I was going and trying to take those future founders of the world and hone them for what they were going to go and do within startups. And essentially, he was going and telling me that I was completely off target in what I was doing in the classroom, that I was thinking it was an entrepreneurship course, but no, this was a life course. This was all sorts of ways in which he was going and impacting the personal side for him. Particularly, he's a newlywed, and he was going, he had gone and gotten married to his co-founder of life, and he had been struggling with a lot of the roles and decision-making issues about uh, how do we go and architect things together? go and make decisions about our next stages of our careers once we get out of school, um, what are the ways in which we should go and allocate roles within the day-to-day. -day. Um, and he was, after having struggled with it within class, he's seeing a bunch of the founding best practices. We were going and having them experience, having them uncover. And he was walking into home each night and saying, honey, this is something that we might want to think about going and trying. Um, or this is one of the difficult conversations that I've seen that founders avoid at their peril. We've been avoiding it. Let's go and have some discussion around it. I went and built my skills today. Noam threw me into a role play with another person to go and be able to experience it and start building conversation muscles. Let's go and see if we can go and do the same kind of thing, be able to be a lot better at being able to grapple with these issues in a serious way. And so it had gone and changed in a fundamental way his personal life. And so at that point, that's where I was broken out of my blinders on that I had 
and started seeing all sorts of walks of life that I was going and applying those things. Uh, when I was having discussions with students, with executives and things like that, hearing echoes of all sorts of ways they were going and uh, being able to go and benefit from a lot of this or that they were grappling with issues where they could benefit from the entrepreneurial thinking and being able to take a very different mindset to how do you go and make career changes. Founders grapple with exactly that. They have a nice steady job. How are they going to go and shift gears into going without a salary when they go and found? Um, how are they going to go and give up, uh, get past the financial handcuffs that they had, the golden handcuffs? How are they going to get past the prestige handcuffs and the other psychic handcuffs? Uh, they are working for Amy Kinsey. And how they go and give it? It's really easy for mom to go and explain what her son does uh, when he's doing that kind of a job. Now are you going to go and do something that's not going to pass the mom test? You know, all those kind of handcuffs <laughs> that we underestimate but actually could go and hamper our going and shifting gears, getting ourselves out of the ruts and things like that. How do founders do it? What can we learn from them as we're going and doing that? How do founders also go and pursue their passion but don't get blinded by the passion in ways that is going to cause problems for them? How can we go and learn from those types of things that when we go and see a way that we want to go and change the world, have it be all for the better, have it all be where we're following our heart but checking it with our head, how can we go and learn the best ways to go and be able to bring a little bit of that concrete head thinking to our passion that we're going to go and pursue blindly unless we go and think about it in the right way? Um, how do we go and deal with failure as we talked about? How do you go and make it into a benefit for you? Like all of these different things. There's all of these applications to career changes at the key inflection points in life, to working in teams, even if it's in a big company team, the personal life things that we've been talking about. Those are all the things that I then went and coalesced um, into the second book, the book, the book that you were referring to originally, uh, Life is a Startup, to be able to go and apply um, these best practices, the counterintuitive ways that founders approach these challenges in life that we might be able to go and learn from. It's interesting because you talk about breaking out of a rut um, or being able to shed those certain handcuffs or shackles, and you yourself were able to drop that Harvard mystique and, and go across country uh, to a lesser renowned institution perhaps in terms of you know, the, the, the reputational value in people's minds, um, but because you saw it was a better and more promising and exciting opportunity for you. Yeah, no, and that's one of the things I actually, I try to keep myself out of the book as much as possible. It's just <laughs> not in my nature to go and check myself in. Uh, but my research assistant who was working with me on the book forced me to go and include that part of it. How do you go and shed those types of handcuffs? Like the, uh, there were several ways in which I had to go. We already talked about my breaking, being broken out of it by a conversation with a place that shifted my orientation towards the impact I could have a role, even if it's a brand new institution that no one's ever heard of, uh, to be able to go and be able to explore that one. Um, also by going and dating other places, being able to go and see that actually a lot of the things that I was thinking were only at Harvard are actually also at these other places that I was a visiting professor. Um, going and visiting, I think it was a fundamental way that I saw how the world can operate in a different way. That the, if you've only been at one place, you think that how it works is universal. That that's the only way that you can go and operate that way. By going and being a visiting professor at an engineering school, I went for a quarter to Stanford Engineering and being able to go and see how that was different not just a different university, but also engineering schools versus business schools. A visiting professor also at Columbia to be able to go and see within the business school there. Being able to go and break yourself out of it, another key fundamental way to go and appreciate that there's all sorts of other better models possibly. There's a lot of pieces of the puzzle to be able to go and explore there. Um, I also went and when I was a visiting professor at those places, experimented with how do I go and detach myself from this 
identity that I've had for 15 years. Um, within my email signature, I would be saying that I'm a visiting professor at that other school rather than having HBSB down there in my signature, um, being able to go and grapple with that. Um, there's also one fundamental one. I got an inquiry from an organization that wanted me to come and speak to uh, their people to be able to go and educate a bunch of founders around the, um, the issues that they were going to be going and grappling with and think about them in a different way. And this is when I was going to be going and leaping HBS. And I said to them that um, I'm sure that the reason that you came to me was because I'm an HBS professor. I'm no longer going to be that. Let me go and find another colleague that you can go and tap to be able to go and have that person come on board. And what they said was, no, we want you. We don't want an HBS professor. We want Noam to be able to come and talk to our people. And it's at that point that I realized that um, HBS is a fundamental way that I could go and build my foundation, be able to go and um, start off as a professor. But at some point, that's where you have to go get your own identity, build your own brand, if you will. Right. Um, and that at that point, they were saying that um, the, the, it's what you bring to the table, not what the name on the business card um, is bringing to the table. That's what you want. And so those things help me go and uh, break the psychic handcuffs to be able to go and find the higher impact role to be able to go and do something very entrepreneurial, create a brand new center, be able to do a lot of these other things that I've uh, been able to go and do over the last three to four years at USC. As a very active Jew, and perhaps we'll close with this, how do you think all the, the lessons that you've learned, all the research you've done, mistakes startups make, can impact the Jewish community? I mean, in some ways, the Jewish community uh, is, is the very opposite of a startup because it's so ancient. But in other ways, perhaps it's like a startup. We're constantly evolving uh, to new realities in the world, adapting new locations. The state of Israel, of course, itself uh, is very much a startup and has a very uh, strong startup culture in, in its entrepreneurial sector, in its tech sector. What are some of the lessons that could be applied from your research to building and improving the Jewish community? No, no, very interesting question. It's one that I grappled with from a different direction about a decade ago also. Um, when I was starting to wonder about what is idiosyncratic to startups, what is idiosyncratic to for-profit entities that are going and uh, want to grow big and things like that, um, and what is more universal? I really didn't have a good answer to that at that point. Um, and so what I did was I went and delved into nonprofit founding. I figured, let me go and be able to see how different that arena is. My expectation was there were going to be dramatic differences in the types of issues that I've been looking at. And for me, the takeaway, the big surprise was how much was universal. Now, when it comes to people, that's when I finally got like a real uh, appreciation of the fact that the human issues apply everywhere in every domain to every type of person. That whether you are going and founding a nonprofit or a for-profit, whether it's going to be a cleaners or it's going to be the next Facebook, whether it's in Africa, the U.S., boom time, bus time, the same kind of people issues are what you have to go and deal with. Um, and so where I was going, 80 to 90% within the nonprofits I was studying were the same things in terms of the three R's that we talked about, same kind of decisions that those people had to face um, that I had gone while I was doing in class, um, the same decision about founding for me, or should I found something? Um, should I do it alone or should I go and do it with other people? How am I going to architect the three R's? Um, am I going to go and bootstrap, like self-finance it, or am I going to go and get out of finance? Those are things that every organization, every founder, no matter what of those domains that they're in, they're going to have to go and grapple with. And so that's when I started seeing that there are implications for Jewish organizations, for nonprofits, for social enterprise, uh, and things like that. Um, there's you know, a couple of differences when it comes to three R's, like the, um, the way there's no 
ownership in the equity sense. Um, and so that's going to be a bit different. Um, you essentially have two and a half of the R's instead of three R's uh, to go and grapple with. Um, the funding side's going to be a little different. There's no venture capitalists, but you have venture philanthropists. You have a ways uh, the board that you're forming and inviting those people onto the board is going to be shaped in a bit in, in a similar way because of the uh, ways in which they're going to look at the world as those outside resource providers and things like that. But outside of those couple of differences, it's re relatively universal. And so I was able to go and get a little bit of the confidence when it was time to, we already talked a little bit about the high school that I found here. I certainly was taking a lot of the best practices around founding startups that, that I'd seen for more than a decade, and we were going and applying it to founding the high school. How do you go and build the governance structure to be able to be scalable? How do you not have it be the typical early governance that is an organic and not formalized or anything like that? How do you go and design it to actually be a scalable governance that's going to be able to go and uh, be architected with the future of the organization in mind rather than the current? How do you go and think about putting together a founding team for that kind of high school? Um, having the ace rabbi who had been for years in the Boston Kollel is going to be the greatest on the uh, Judaic side. How do we go ensure that the uh, general studies side, that the, the whole side is also going to be shown? We brought him together with a person who had been the superintendent uh, for 20 years of the Belmont school system, uh, a very religious Christian um, who believed in the, the, the benefits of religious education and had very much an entrepreneurial passion after working in such a big school system for so long to go and create something and take his knowledge and be able to apply it to creating a brand new high school. Put the two of them together, be able to have them each be the check on each other or making sure the other is not getting discounted, um, be able to make sure they you have both the general studies and the Judaic that's going to be able to go and grow together and be able to uh, have a center of gravity within the school that's on both of those poles. Um, and so how do you go and think about bringing that founding team together, architecting their relationship, be able to under, have them understand the relationship, the roles, uh, all of those other things that go into it. So at the governance level, at the team building level, you're able to go and execute on it by going and applying those, uh, the, the lessons that we had learned within startups to uh, that Jewish profit. Uh, to be able to go and build that. And since then, being able to go take that also into the elementary school here that's been around uh, when I came on board within it for 36 years, uh, be able to go and understand that restart up when you're talking about like the Jewish people and the long running nature of it. How do you go and be able to instill some new entrepreneurial thinking, how to be able to go and rethink the governance, the bylaws that hadn't been changed in 36 years <laughs> since founding the, uh, the governance structure that hadn't uh, changed at all. How do you go and think about what this big 270 student school uh, needs that is different from when it was attracting the first kid. And how do we go and architect the organizations in the same way? That was just going and taking all the founding principles, being able to go and apply them now to a school that is uh, in the refresh realm rather than the go and create it from scratch realm. Um, and so, you know, there's all sorts of ways that Jewish organizations can go and think in a different way about it. Do you find yourself constantly being um, approached by organizations and, uh, and companies as well, kind of picking your brain for this kind of consulting information? Uh, fortunately, yes. <laughs> One of my joys is being able to go and have them be able to think in a different way, even in a single fundamental way, if we can go and add something to how they're going and planning to go and adjust their plans in a single way, let alone lots of the ways that we can go and do like a, when I have the, the full semester worth, you know, I can go and impact the students in hundreds of ways, but if we can go and find one way in a fundamental way to go and have them think differently and do thing, things a bit better, um, then if I can go and help them find that, then it's a joy to be able to do that. 
Well, we'll have to let people over at, at Uber and, and elsewhere know to come and approach you because it sounds like you could be of great service to some of these companies. Um, and I know you have been to thousands of students and uh, many organizations around the country, around the world. Uh, Noam Wasserman, professor, author, and uh, entrepreneurship guru, if you will. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure, no, my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.